Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today we're going to do something a little different. I'm talking to Helen Redmond, a senior editor and multimedia journalist at Filter, a website that covers drug news. But I don't want to talk about her writing right now. Instead, I want to focus on Helen's other work as a Harlem-based documentary filmmaker and licensed clinical social worker. An expert on drug addiction and treatment, Helen has been documenting America's methadone treatment system for years, first in her feature-length film Liquid Handcuffs, a documentary to free methadone, and most recently in her new film Swallow This, a documentary about methadone and COVID-19 which she co-directed with Marlena Marchetti, and which is currently on tour across the United States. So while we usually talk about books here, I wanted to talk with Helen today about her new documentary instead. There's not a lot out there about the history of methadone in America, especially the way the system impacts its users. And Helen has been one of the few people covering the new legislation that's being considered in Washington in the wake of the pandemic, that might change how methadone is made available. Her films are histories unto themselves, so while they're not technically books, they can help fill in some of the background, and maybe some future predictions, for a system we need to better understand. For more on her films and links to her work, check out the New Books Network Drugs Addiction and Recovery page, where I'll make sure everything gets posted. But for now, Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, Let's start by talking a little bit about your background. Um, As we said, you're you're so many things. You're a documentarian, a journalist, a social worker. You also teach at my alma mater, NYU, Go Violets. Um, How did you get into all of these fields? Well, that is a good question. I will try to answer it. I started out as a social worker. And I found myself working with people who use drugs. So way back in the day in the 1990s in Chicago, I was working at the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, Medical Center, an outpatient clinic, and then went to Cook County, the legendary Cook County Hospital and Emergency Room. I always found myself drawn to working with people who use drugs. Obviously, HIV AIDS, one of the major transmission routes was the sharing of needles. Intravenous drug users have had very high rates of HIV. And so I was working with people who injected heroin and I really enjoyed uh, doing that work. I learned so much from my patients and from being a medical social worker. I, I, I came to understand how dysfunctional healthcare system is how we essentially don't really have a drug treatment system in this this country. It's absolutely dysfunctional. And I, as part of my job, I would help patients get into methadone clinics. So that was my first introduction to the methadone clinic system was assisting patients to get into treatment because 
it's it was hard then in the 90s it's still hard now and that was kind of my introduction uh to methadone and people who use drugs and i wanted to make a film about the american healthcare system and this was during the the obamacare uh time in the us way back in in 2009 and my co-filmmaker marilena and I, we said, we need to document what's happening in the attempt to create a new healthcare system in the United States. We are for socialized medicine. We are for a national single payer, everybody in, nobody out. And so we made a documentary called The Vampire of Daylight, driving a stake through the heart of the health insurance corporations. It was our first film, it's okay. Um, so, but it was important for us to document from, you know, where we are, or I'm a socialist, I'm a Marxist, I'm a harm reductionist. And we felt it's important to document this through those lenses because they're not going to be by mainstream documentarians. So that's how I got into film. It was just wanting to document. Uh, you probably know this, Emily, because technology has changed so much it's possible for people who didn't go to film school to make documentaries. I mean, the, 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 the programs to edit uh, documentaries, you can buy it. You know, we use Final Cut and cameras. And so that also, the technology helped me to get into the documentary game. So that was kind of a, a lucky accident. So that's kind of how it started. That's amazing. So you were starting to be uh, doing doing medical social work in the 90s in Chicago. In the 90s, and that is when AIDS deaths are peaking. This is when the disease is really widespread and, I mean, just destroying lives. This must have been a, a really uh, tragic but also pretty fascinating time to be working with people who use drugs. It was very... I, I think about this now because we are in what uh, Jess Tilley, who is the executive director of the New England uh, Users Union, what she calls the fentanyl apocalypse. And the, the incredible death toll, it, it takes me back to, to AIDS where so many patients died. And I feel we're back there and now they're dying of a preventable, a, I mean, many, many of these these overdose deaths are preventable, and methadone is a is a key part of stopping overdose deaths, and that's why I am so enraged at this clinic system that literally has not changed for fifty years. I mean, it didn't change during the HIV/AIDS epidemic. It it did not change in any significant way to bring people in. Uh, to get them on methadone, to help them get their lives back together. It didn't change, and it's not changing now, even after COVID, which we'll come on to. Isn't that incredible? Uh, I had a very similar discussion with Jerome Jaffe, uh, Nixon's first drug czar, who essentially created the methadone clinic system, and he said the exact same thing. Despite staggering rates of deaths, unprecedented rates of deaths, 
uh, nothing has fundamentally changed, but there were two pandemics before this, as you said. There were uh, there was AIDS in the 1980s and early 90s, and there was the beginning of the op- of the overdose crisis in the early 2000s. And yet, it remains difficult to uh, to change anything for a variety of reasons. And and what what would you say um, the reasons why we've had this clinic system that you that you analyze so closely for a half century, and yet it is not as responsive to uh, yesterday's needs nor today's as it should be or as it could be? Well, it has to do with a couple of things, very powerful forces. The, uh, you know, you're writing a book about this. It goes back to Richard Nixon and the war on drugs and racism. You know, this is a country where racism features in everything. It doesn't matter what area you look at, if it's drug treatment, healthcare, education, uh, racism is, is a part of it. And so, you know, you talked to Jerome Jaffe and, you know, he was actually part of the problem. He and Robert DuPont, you know, these psychiatrists, I mean, the two of them, they, they give psychiatry a very bad name because, uh, at, at least, uh, DuPont was doing, uh, research around heroin use and crime with mostly black men in DC in who were in jail. And there is this link supposedly between heroin and crime. And then you have Vincent Dole, Marie Nicewander, Mary Jean Creek in New York at Rockefeller University. And they are using methadone and finding out it actually works. It's long acting. It staves off, uh, you know, withdrawal symptoms. And so they come up with this idea, right. Uh, to give methadone to people who are addicted to heroin, but the goal was always to control, contain, confine people. And so the clinic system is born and I'm pretty sure it's Robert DuPont who said, you know, the way that we control it, is we have to ha- they have to come six or seven days a week to get it. And that's how we will bring the crime rate down because they will be going to the clinic every day and that will control, contain, and confine them. And in urban centers where there is a lot of heroin use at the time, there's also rebellions in black communities. Nixon is a known racist, uh, racist to the core. We It's, it's documented. Uh, and so this is a way to control black and brown communities by creating a structure that essentially uh, forces them to come on a daily basis. And then all of the surveillance that they build into the clinic experience. And of course, the Drug Enforcement Administration is a central part in creating the clinic system. They are waging the war on drugs, which is a war on black and brown people and poor people, right? So you've got all of that coming together to create this clinic system, which we've had it now for 50 years. So it's institutionalized, right? And how do you uproot something that has been in place for five decades, right? So that's, that's just a thumbnail sketch of the origins, but it's about racism and it's about control of people who use drugs and not seeing it as a health issue, right? Not seeing it as people who are addicted to heroin need 
treatment and empathy and, and healthcare. No, they need a clinic system that as, as methadone has been called forever, liquid handcuffs, and you can never graduate. You can never get out of it. As long as you're on methadone, you're going to be in this system. You cannot get out. It's like, it's a carceral system. It's like jail and prison. It's certainly like the, the, the political origins of it are, can't be overstated, right? Uh, it is essentially a, a product of Washington uh, and of war um, launched in the wake of uh, reports of addicted soldiers in Vietnam and like major fears as well of people coming back and, um, you know, GI junkies, right? Like wreaking chaos in the streets as they're trying to get their next fix. There's, there's so many intensely political uh, sort of origin stories for this system as it is, but it's always been uh, really controversial, as you said, right? And and even the communities where clinics were being opened were oftentimes very antagonistic towards them, right? I found a lot of really interesting editorials from like um, black underground newspapers in the seventies. One in Chicago where you used to work, there's a lot of fury against the methadone system, uh, viewing it as, you know, they're trying to um, quiet the revolutionaries. Uh, You know, all of this is coming in the wake of a lot of major uprisings, urban uprisings uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, right? So you're, you're, I I agree with you a thousand percent about these really um, political origins of the system. And that does seem to present a lot of tension if you have a political system trying to handle a medical condition. And you can kind of see where the nit hits the grit with this tension in your documentary, Swallow This, which is about a political system confronting not just the health problem of addiction, but the health problem of a global pandemic. Uh, So now that you've set the table for where these clinics come from, can you also tell us a little bit about what they are currently and and how they responded to uh, COVID-19. It's really really sad that it took a pandemic to really rip the lid off of methadone clinics or OTPs, opioid treatment programs, as they're often called. I, I use the two interchangeably, just so your listeners know that. It took a pandemic and it took people dying and the threat of a virus killing people to finally take a look at this antiquated system. And that seems to be the way in the United States is that there has to be some major upheaval where a lot of people die in order for a lens to be put or a light to be shined onto systems. It did it with our healthcare system as well. People found out how broken our healthcare system is. So the light was put on the methadone clinic system because the clinic owners could not ignore COVID. The reality was very stark. If you have people six or seven days a week lining up for hours to get into the clinic and then lining up uh, once they get into the clinic, right, Clinics have hundreds of people coming every day. That could not stand. And so something had to be be done. And for the first time in decades, the DEA and SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 
got together and said, uh, we have to do something. And they put out a memorandum that said every clinic could screen every single patient for either 14-day take-homes or 28-day take-homes. And that, as people on methadone will tell you, they probably have, that is liberation. That is not having to go to the clinic six or seven days a week. And so that was a memorandum. And then it was up to each clinic to decide if they were going to do that. And from my research, the other thing, I, I didn't mention this at the top, but I'm, I'm also a journalist. And I've been writing about methadone for five or six years now. And the documentaries that I've made eight or nine years in the making for both together. So I've interviewed a lot of people, um, not just in the United States, but in, in other countries to get a perspective on different systems. And so, you know, this, uh, this is liberatory um, if you can get the 14 or 28 day take homes. But one of the things that we found when we went around the country to make swallow this is that it was very uneven and that's also what some of the um, people who take methadone that I'm in contact with, uh, because I, I, some of them write for Filter, which is the website that, that I write for. It was very uneven across the country. And it's always up to the clinic to decide what they want to do. You know, SAMHSA comes out with guidelines, and that's ex exactly what they are. They're guidelines. And so at the end of the day, the clinic decides. So under COVID, there were clinics that gave out a lot more take-homes, and we have studies that show that. And then we also know there are clinics who gave out very few. They gave out uh, maybe maybe you had to the, come to the clinic maybe three times a week or just twice a week. Uh, but we know across the country it was very uneven. But that was the first time, I think, ever that there was a major policy guideline, uh, but again, implemented very unevenly. And I would say now uh, that no, probably no clinics are, are doing that. There might be a few exceptions, but uh, they went back to baseline, essentially. Can you talk a little bit about the background of take-home dosing? The guidelines suggest that uh, clients should be able to essentially graduate to the point where they have monthly take-homes. Some of the people in your uh, documentary had had monthly, as you said, some of the SAMHSA guidelines said between 14 and 28 days, so that's about a month. But not everybody gets that, and certainly not everybody gets that right away. Could you talk a little bit about the dosing system that most, uh, that most patients would uh, basically be faced with if they were to start treatment at an OTP? Yes, uh, this is where it's important to just lay down the, the culture of cruelty that exists in every clinic in the United States. And the culture of cruelty is all of the rules and regs that people have to adhere to to get take-home bottles. So as people have said in Swallow This and also in, in Liquid Handcuffs, it is take-home bottles of medication are a privilege and something you have to earn. And of course, there's no other medication where you get to take it home and do it 
and take it unsupervised in the privacy of your home or wherever you want to take it. There's no other medication that it's a privilege and you have to earn it. So right there, we have to identify this is part of the culture of cruelty where people uh, are not trusted. I mean, that is really the basis. It's one of the basis of clinics. Uh, patients are not trusted. And uh, Nina, one of the characters in, in Swallow says that they just don't trust us to take our medication at home. And of course, people take methadone, take lots of other medications, right? And they take them at home and they take them safely. So you have to, it's a privilege and you have to earn it. And so it, that then the other part, a central part of methadone clinics is toxicology screening, uh, urine, right? Urine drops. Uh, they can be planned urine drops. They can be uh, random. You just come in. We want your urine. And if your urine is positive for other substances, uh, you can't get take-homes. You, you essentially have to be a perfect patient. So your toxicology screens have to be negative. The other part of the culture of cruelty is mandatory counseling. And to me, that's an oxymoron. You know, I'm a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have a code of ethics that I adhere to. And a central part of that code of ethics is client autonomy, that you have the right of autonomy and, and you should be free to make decisions. And that does not happen in, in methadone clinics. And that's because of the massive power differential between the patients and the staff. You know, the staff control access to your medication. It is locked in a safe behind a bulletproof plexiglass window. And that's where the nurses are. And the door is locked. Again, this is carceral. Uh, I think that we could maybe we could talk about the hostile architecture that is part of a methadone clinic. So, you know, this is a game. It is a game to earn take-home medication. And you have to comply with the regs. So that is no positive talk screens. You have to make your uh, your mandatory counseling appointments. They could be individual counseling or group counseling. You can't miss doses. Uh, and clinics can add additional criteria if they want to. Um, most of this is laid down in the SAMHSA guidelines. Uh, but again, clinics can add other criteria in order to get the take-homes. So then you get your take-homes. You earn them. And you take them home, right? And so then there's a thing called bottle recall. Bottle recall is the clinic calls you and says, hey, Emily, bring all your bottles in. You've got 24 hours. Well, guess what? You're in Switzerland or you're uh, in another state and you can't bring them in. So the punishment for that is all your take-homes are taken away. And this can happen for anything. It can, you can come in for a talk screen and it's positive. The take-homes are taken away. So it's a game that they play with people. And again, it's part of this culture of cruelty. And it has to end. Right. It doesn't seem particularly conducive to um, helping someone, <laughs> as, as should be the core, the core value of healthcare, right, would be to would be to heal someone. And you're this does sound like such an incredibly punitive and cruel system. Uh, I read somewhere that um, drug users are always considered 
those people in scare quotes, you know, those people. And there's a lot of uh, very troublesome behavior that is directed toward in scare quotes, those people. But this is also um, what's interesting to me about clinics is that they're also becoming kind of uh, the future of corporatized healthcare in a lot of ways. a lot of clinics are being bought up by large venture capital firms uh, and kind of congregated together and turned into a very base level services place that is paid fundamentally through Medicaid dollars or Medicare as um, drug using populations are aging. Uh, and they're becoming a very um, essentially profitable but uh, dehumanized source of uh, corporate healthcare and a lot of money is going to be flowing into these clinics as pandemic dollars are kind of petering out, but all the opioid, opioid settlement money is coming in. Do you have any thoughts about the massive, <laughs> massive amounts of funding that's going to go into a system that, as you point out quite clearly, is riddled with problems and because of this culture of cruelty, fundamentally incapable of dealing with these larger issues, especially with fentanyl that we're dealing with now? I just wanted to add something to what happens in clinics because they're, as I've said, they're carceral institutions and people are punished all the time. And I've, again, I've interviewed lots of folks who take methadone and something that they say to me on a regular basis is the amount of fear and anxiety they have when they're go, when they're trying to get to the clinic. We know that people commute could be an hour, two hours, Uh, People in rural communities have it very bad, right? Uh, There's one clinic and it's two hours away and there's a snowstorm or it is raining or there's a heat emergency. With climate change, it just has exacerbated this. And that's also part of, of the culture of cruelty. But this fear and anxiety that people have because they're in a very vulnerable position, right? I mean... This clinic controls access to your medication that you need, like oxygen. It's not an optional extra. Oh, I won't take it, right? I won't, I won't take my aspirin today. That, that's probably not going to hurt you. But, and it's this incredible power differential that makes people uh, afraid, anxious, docile, obedient. And that, to me, is absolutely unacceptable. And it's one of the reasons I'm an abolitionist because of this power that the staff have over people to punish them and control them and cause people to orientate their entire lives around the clinic, right? If you're going to a clinic seven days a week, that is the center of your life. It's not your family. Can you have a job? So these are the reasons that we have to abolish the clinic. Now, I think maybe it's been about 10 years where we have seen venture capital flow into the methadone clinic system, the OTP system, Bain Capital, for example. And as most capitalists, they saw an opportunity with the overdose death rate and the need for treatment that sprang up, right? I mean, we could talk about the three waves of the opioid overdose crisis, starting with prescription medication and then moving on to heroin. And now we're in the era of fentanyl. 
more people are addicted to uh, opioids. And we know medication-assisted treatment is the most effective. Methadone's been studied for, what, 40, 50 years. We know it works. It's safe, et cetera. And they saw an opportunity. So now you do. You have the mega methadone chains. You have Baymark. You have community medical services. And they own, in some states, I mean, they're the biggest provider. And they're all about profit. And one of the ways they make profit is by having people come six or seven days a week, right? You can bill for nursing services. You can bill for the bogus counseling that they offer and any other number of services. They have a thing called bundled payments. I'm not sure what's in that. Uh, But that's how you make profit, having people come every day, having the dope, having witness what they call witness doses, right? And so I'm not surprised because our entire healthcare system is corporatized. Right. It, it, when I learned more about the history of this system, I thought we're really treating these patients as kind of canaries in the coal mine, right? They're the first uh, group of patients that I feel like we're really turning the screws on as far as corporate healthcare is concerned. And I see that just spreading. Uh, and it worries me because it feels as though society so deeply stigmatizes drug users that we're, it doesn't really matter to us that uh, our clinic system is punishing and uh, insufficient to the problem. Uh, it doesn't really matter if we have over 110,000 overdose deaths a year. It, it's, it's staggering to me the lack of concern about this problem. But I do feel like as as the problem expands, as corporate healthcare continues to touch more realms of our lives, we're going to realize, wow, we did this first to like this group of individuals. And because no one spoke up for them, now it's happening to to everyone else, which is, you know, I understand sort of my my paranoia speaking here about, about uh, the problems with our healthcare system. But I feel like as someone who studies this and has made a documentary about it, you might be receptive to my, to my fears. <laughs> well, and I saw that on display in a very visceral way when I went to the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence Conference last year in Baltimore. And they have a room where the what I call the methadone clinic ecosystem displays their wares. And you could see how this is a system and there is a group of vendors of, of businesses that make profit, right? So there's a pharmaceutical company that makes methadone. There are the companies that, I, I mentioned this earlier, you have to put methadone in a safe and it has to weigh at least 750 pounds. And so the makers of the safes are there and you've got the, uh, the, companies that make the dispensing machines that are hooked into the computers. And then the most dystopian uh, innovation, if you could call it that, is now this is something the the venture capitalists that own the Baymarks and the community medical services learned. Okay, we're going to give more people take-homes and we're going to do it more quickly but we're still going to surveil them. They won't be coming into the clinic five, six days a week, and our 
staff will watch them drink the methadone and ask them to lift up their tongue or to speak. What we're going to do is develop an app where they will uh, use this, download the app onto their phone and they will videotape themselves at home swallowing their dose and they will upload it to the clinic, to their server. And then a staff person will review the video to see that they took it appropriately. Is this a continuation of the telehealth uh, sort of ex- experience for for OUD treatment? No, Maybe I see extension it, of it. <laughs> I see it more of an extension of the carceral system, where you have people if they want to get out of jail, they have to wear a bracelet around their ankle, and you know they have G, it's GPS. They can monitor when they take the dose and where they are. It's very much like the bracelet that. Uh, people have to wear. Yeah, or the uh, the thing you have to blow in to drive your car. <laughs> yes. Right. About surveillance, and again, going back to what people on methadone have been telling us for decades, they just don't trust us. It's a system that is built on, we do not trust you. Right, right. It's certainly, um, it's, it's a kind of political and legal s- monopoly over drug distribution rather than a system of healthcare uh, and rehabilitation. So can we we talk a little bit about what you would envision as as a more palatable future? You said you're a clinic abolitionist, but people need methadone. So how do we thread that needle? Well, it's, I, I, One of the things my co-filmmaker Mari, Lena, and I are kind of saying more now as we're touring around the country is like, let's not overthink it. Let's not overthink this. So methadone is already in pharmacies. Any provider uh, with prescription, the ability to write prescriptions can actually write a prescription for methadone for a person for pain but they can't write a prescription for a person to have methadone to treat addiction. So what we need, we just need prescription parity. We need every provider, and I'm talking about doctors, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians, assistants, to be able to prescribe methadone for addiction and for that person to go to their local pharmacy and pick it up. And that is essentially what happens in the UK, in New Zealand, in other countries in Europe, a doctor or nurse practitioner, whatever, prescribes methadone and they go to the pharmacy and they pick it up. And that's, that's what I'm for, treating it like any other medication. Yeah. And there, there are like the political ways to do this would either be to reschedule methadone from two to three, and therefore it would abide by data 2000, uh, the the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000 that allowed for office-based opioid treatment with buprenorphine, or you move data 2000 up to include schedule two drugs like methadone. But my question with that would be then, you know, since we've had buprenorphine, we've had Suboxone around now for uh, 20 years this year, right? It was FDA approved in 2003. So happy 20th birthday, Suboxone. Um, although, of course, buprenorphine has been around for way longer than that. But uh, one of the problems with buprenorphine access is that doctors don't want to prescribe it and pharmacies don't want to stock it. Would 
do you fear that maybe we would run into similar problems with methadone if it were available in pharmacies? There's still the stigma against even just, you know, writing the prescription, uh, stocking it for, for maintenance. It's um, the hurdles that buprenorphine has gone through are the things that I would fear would face methadone as well if it weren't made more available in pharmacies. The, ans- the short answer is yes, because again, our healthcare system is profoundly dysfunctional and that is a reality. Um, there's no question there would be problems, but for me, those problems are much better to deal with than the problems that we have with the methadone clinic system. Um, you can't reform that system. It is reform proof. It is based on racism, profound inequality, and punishment, and in siloing uh, treatment. And so we can look at buprenorphine to see what some of the problems would be. A- absolutely. And the other pro- one of the major problems, of course, with buprenorphine is the DEA. And so it's one of the main reasons that prescribers give for not wanting to prescribe buprenorphine is that you have the DEA surveilling you. And to lose your, it's actually called a DEA number, which is outrageous, right? You have to have a DEA number to prescribe uh, controlled substances. They are part of the problem. So I see the fight to make methadone available like any other medication, prescription parity, it also has to take up the role of the DEA because this is a, as a, it's a police agency, it's waging the war on drugs. They are in part responsible for the fentanyl apocalypse. You know, this is a, an agency that is about fear and control, has no knowledge of, I mean, it, it, it is staggering to me that we have a police agency involved in drug treatment at all. And we have to get them out. You know, organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance have called for the abolition of the DEA. They say they serve no purpose. I mean, the fact that the overdose rate continues to go up every year. I mean, I, I, the drug war, they're not winning it. I mean, this is an agency that fails over and over and over and over again. So there will be problems, to be sure, with uh, when we move to that system. But again... Um, it's not a reason not to do it. It's not a reason to keep the status quo, which oppresses people on methadone. I also believe if we move to the system, there is now the opportunity for people on methadone to organize, uh, to advocate when there are problems. What we see now is people are so atomized and afraid and isolated. It's hard to organize against this clinic system. If we have a system of prescription parity, I think it will be easier for people on methadone to organize to say, here are these problems at the pharmacy. We're not getting our medication on time or whatever the problem is. There'll be an opportunity for for methadone users to organize into consumer groups to say, there's problems and here's the solution. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the um, 
pending legislation that has been brought up kind of, I guess, is it inspired by the pandemic and the changes that were made? Can you tell us a little bit about, about what's going on on Capitol Hill in regards to methadone? Not much. And this is a this is a perennial problem that because drug use is still criminalized and people who use drugs are considered criminals and you know, we've got the DEA and, and a war on people who are using fentanyl and we, the war on drugs is still very much alive in the United States. I mean, uh, people are being charged in fentanyl overdose deaths, uh, et cetera. So there's not much. The only thing that the only legislation that's been proposed is the modernizing uh, opioid treatment. Uh, I'm sorry, let me um, say that again. The Modernizing Opioid Treatment Access Act. And so this is a bill, it's a bipartisan bill that's been put forward by um, Representative uh, Donald Norcross from New Jersey, Edward Markey in Massachusetts, he's a Democrat, Rand Paul, who is a Republican from Kentucky. And so this bill has been uh, bipartisan support, and it's actually a terrible bill. And I don't think anybody should support it. And here's the reason, there's a couple reasons why. The first thing is it only allows a small group uh, to prescribe methadone. And they can prescribe methadone and people can pick it up in a pharmacy. So it allows a group of people to bypass the clinic system, which in and of itself is a good thing. But the problem is, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, there's about 7,000 board certified doctors. So in order to prescribe methadone, you have to be board certified in addiction. So you could be an addiction psychiatrist, uh, you can have the certification be a family practice doctor, right? But Maybe there's 7,000. I think that number is actually not correct, but in any case. So there's hundreds of thousands of people who need methadone, right? You've got a tiny group of people that are going to be able to prescribe it. So right there, that is a problem. And it also continues to silo addiction, uh, medicine, and, and, you know, taking people out of the, the rest of the medical s- system, which has been a problem since the beginning. They've been cut off and been left out of the larger healthcare system, right? So it reinforces that. And it's also going to reinforce racial disparities because we know in the United States who gets to go to hyper-specialists like addiction doctors, right? There are no board-certified addiction doctors out in rural areas. You know, I, I live in New York City, so this is the home of, you know, the, the methadone clinic system, right? There's lots of uh, addiction uh, doc- doctors who are board certified in addiction medicine. So people of color have a better chance here in New York, but that's not true in, in most of the country. And the other thing is a lot of specialists, they don't take Medicaid, right? I mean, doctors in this country can pick and choose what insurance they want to take. And many of them don't accept Medicaid. And we know a disproportionate amount of black and brown people are on Medicaid. And that's the payer. That's the number one payer for methadone in the United States, right? 
So right there, you are going to be reinforcing racial disparities. It's going to be white, middle class, quote unquote, stable people, you know, and, and this is where I really want to promote a book because you mentioned buprenorphine a, a minute ago and buprenorphine is really the cautionary tale for doing methadone in a different way, right? And there's a new book called, called Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. And it's by Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Herzberg. I'm sure you know them. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. Yes, I actually have it on my table right over there. Yes. <laughs> and buprenorphine is a cautionary tale. It completely is, not completely, but almost completely a drug taken by white folks. Uh, a new study just out in JAMA said th- white people are three to four times more likely to get a prescription of buprenorphine. So the exact thing, exact same thing is going to happen. It's going to be a small group that get the liquid handcuffs taken off. They're going to be white. They're going to be stable. So that is a huge problem. I cannot be for legislation that I am almost 100% sure is going to reinforce racial disparities in drug treatment. No one should be in favor of legislation that we know. It's an intended consequence. It's not unintended. The other problem is the DEA is going to be registering these board-certified addiction specialists. Buprenorphine, look what happened, right? They don't want to have that oversight. They don't want to be visited by the DEA. They don't want to be monitored by them. They're scared of the DEA. I've actually had a director of a methadone clinic tell me, she said, we are afraid of the DEA. And for good reason, because they can yank their license to prescribe uh, controlled substances. So this legislation, the DEA registers people to... Uh, and they'll be overseeing them. So that right there is going to cut down on how many doctors are going to be willing to do it, right? We saw, we see this with buprenorphine. The other thing that this legislation does, which I think is very uh, problematic, and I think in any legislation, you have to look for the poison pills, right? You have to look for the things that are going to undermine the effectiveness of it. And so as part of the Moda bill, it says that a state may request that the DEA stop registering such practitioners in its jurisdiction. So the state can opt out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they're already opting out of the new SAMHSA guidelines. And you know this is going to happen in the clinics. I'm going to put pressure on the soda. And the, the soda often works very closely with the clinic. So they're going to opt out. So how many out of that 7,000 that ASAM says is board certified are actually going to do it? And then they also uh, have to consider the criteria for stable and unstable patients. And again, uh, this is, uh, it discriminates against people of color. It it discriminates against people who are marginally housed, who are unemployed, right? Uh, This idea of a stable person and unstable, you can, maybe you've seen the criteria. So, these doctors are supposed to look at that criteria to decide who can get methadone prescriptions and pick it up at the pharmacy. So it's a bad bill. It's a terrible bill. It's not, it should not be passed. 
Because here's the other lesson that we have to learn. And you wrote this amazing book about cannabis and the movement to make it illegal and and passing legislation. And we're in a situation now with cannabis legalization for adult recreational use where states have passed it and there's no social equity provisions. There's no, the tax money isn't going back into the communities that have been most directly impacted, black and brown communities, right? Uh, And we should not pass any legislation which doesn't, from the get-go, eliminate that possibility as much as possible. So I'm not in favor of passing a bill that helps the fewest amount of people and reinforces uh, racial disparities and we know that legislators, when they pass legislation, they won't revisit that legislation for years, if not decades. So no to MOTA. No, no to MOTA. Well, I looked it up uh, before we spoke. It looks like uh, Markey had introduced it in March and hasn't gone anywhere since. And now here we are, you know, nearing mid-July. So who knows? It's... Um, but thank you for that education on on Mota. I did not know that, and it does seem um, deeply problematic, <laughs> to to put it mildly. Um, so, what would be the ideal then? We, we we have a few minutes left. I've taken up a lot of your time already. I know you have uh, lots more amazing things to get to. But in conclusion, if not the clinic system, and if not Mota, what's uh, what would be a, a better choice? I mean, we just look across the border to Canada, Britain, any, any person who prescribes medications can prescribe methadone and the person picks it up in the pharmacy, prescription parity. We don't, we don't need to, on that level, we don't need to overthink it. To get to that system, there's going to be a hell of a fight because of what we said a, a bit ago. There are the, the vested interests in making profit, they will not go without a fight. And ATOD, um, helmed by Mark Perino, they are fighting MODA, even though MODA doesn't even begin to address the problems in the methadone clinic system. They're fighting against it. And they have people on Capitol Hill who are saying that this bill will lead to all you know, more overdose deaths and saying all kinds of crazy stuff against this bill, which is just a drop in the bucket. It's not going to change anything. But ATOD has mobilized against that. So there are formidable interests in the status quo. And ATOD is essentially the organization. It's a trade organization for clinics, right? And they have the, their president is uh, works at Baymark. Jason Clutter. So ATOD and the clinics, they have a vested interest in the status quo and keeping pe- people in liquid handcuffs. And there's going to have to be a fight to break their power. Well, it seems like you are certainly doing your part to wage that fight. Um, and you have been doing so for years. You're one of the foremost documentarians and journalists about this extremely difficult system um, that has so much potential, right? Uh, I agree with you that methadone really can be an extraordinarily helpful, life-saving medication 
and more people should have access to it. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, as we said before, links to all of Helen's work will be available uh, on the New Books Network site. Um, hopefully they'll be on like the podcast thing as well. Uh, but thank you again, Helen. And um, this the question we ask all of our hosts or all of our guests as we finish up is um it's been great talking to you about this but what are you working on next what will we talk about you talk about with you the next time you're on this show well i'm actually um finishing up a piece on moda and i'm working this is methadone monday for me so on mondays i work on methadone related projects so i am in the process of making a short video about a former executive director of a methadone clinic. And I did an interview with her a while ago and she was hired to work temporarily in a methadone clinic that was in a lot of, they had a lot of violations and they were going to lose their license. And she was brought in to sort of clean up a hot mess and she's also a licensed clinical social worker. So she found me through Filter. And what she found in this methadone clinic horrified her. She could not believe the culture of cruelty. And so I did an interview with her after she resigned. She actually had to resign because she couldn't take it anymore. And she realized she couldn't reform it, that this is a system. And there was no way that she could actually reform it so that the staff treated people with dignity and respect. And I have this amazing interview with her and she's telling incredible first person stories about how the culture of cruelty works and some of the things that she saw and and witnessed. So I'm, I'm working on that and I hope to have that finished by the end of July. And then we continue the tour for, for Swallow This. Hopefully it's coming to a city near you. Uh, people can reach out to us and ask us to come to their city for a screening. And we're trying to build a, a group of people who want to fight to free methadone. That's what this is about. It's about the liberation, uh, the ending of the oppression of people who take methadone. And it's about racial justice. Well, hopefully uh, you can all go schedule a screening of Swallow This, get in touch with Helen. Um, But again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed our talk today and I look forward to having you back on here to talk about your next work. (laughs) Thank you. 